man, I'd like to say good morning, church family. Those of you that are here with us in the room and those of you that are joining us online, we are so glad uh, that you decided to uh, worship with us this morning. I'd also like to say a big thank you to our pastor, as Mike mentioned, who is away in Israel right now. Uh, he's granted me this opportunity. Um, I'm humbled and I'm grateful to be able to present God's word to you. Uh, this morning, and be, on behalf of Pastor, who was he here this morning, I can guarantee you would have to make a comment about it. In light of yesterday's events, all I'm going to say is how about them dogs? <laughs> I remember when I was younger and the very first iPhone came out and it was revolutionary. It was slick, it was touchscreen, it was different than anything else that had come out at that time. Uh, before that, Blackberries were really big, if you remember those. I remember being a big fan of the Brick Breaker game on there, and you'd go on there and I'd play that thing for way too long before apps were a big thing. But I remember the iPhone coming out, and despite the fact that at my age I had no need for an iPhone, I desperately wanted one. I had no serious calls to make. There was nobody expecting me to text them. And if you pressed me, I probably could not have even signed into my email account at that time. So for me to have an iPhone was a little ridiculous. It was useless to me. But nonetheless, I pleaded with my parents. And as you can likely guess, their response would be something like the way you would respond. They looked at me and they said, no. They said, no. I didn't even get an ask your father. I just got a flat out no. And uh, it wasn't long until um, I realized that I was probably not going to get an iPhone. But I remember this one Sunday, a couple at our church approached me and they gave me an iPhone that they had. Now, this thing, it looked like an iPhone. It felt like an iPhone. But whatever made up the inside of this thing was not an iPhone because on its best day, it barely worked. And it wasn't until long before it stopped working completely. And I, re I remember the day that I decided, I was like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Well, what is this thing? So I flipped it around. I read the small manufacturing print on the back of it, and I realized the problem. I'm no genius, but I knew that a company like Apple would not make this big of a mistake because on the back of this iPhone and small little prints were these words, made in California. Those of you that are a little confused still, you didn't hear me wrong and you didn't read that wrong. That is not an RN, it's not California, that is an M. It said Califomia. And I quickly realized that what I was holding was not an iPhone at all, it was a fake. You don't have to go very far today to find products that are fake. A CNNBC article back in 2015 ran with this lead statement. They said this, have you lost a ton of money on the stock market this week? Then it's time to invest in counterfeit money. It's estimated that around 0.01% of current U.S. currency in circulation is actually counterfeit. Now, before you think that that's insignificant, that could be upwards of $200 million currently in circulation that is completely fake. That's over 4,000 pounds or two tons of $100 bills. That's a lot of money. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to New York City for the first time, and I remember walking around downtown, and on the side of the streets, there are purses being sold everywhere. And these purses have these big, flashy, high-end brand logos, but are being sold for $50. Counterfeit items and goods and products are all around us today. And here's the sad part. Sometimes counterfeit items are being purchased without any knowledge that they are fake. Sure, when you buy a coach purse in downtown New York City for $50 on the side of the street, you should probably know that you are buying a fake purse. 
But many people are tricked and are fooled into buying items and products that are actually fake. And many times the victim is none the wiser that they are being fooled into believing that what they have is real. More tragic than that though, Jesus tells us in scripture that there are men and women who have bought into a counterfeit faith. Very likely they have stumbled into this faith on accident. And and in most cases, they are completely unaware of their situation. But hour by hour, day by day, year after year passes by for this person without even the slightest hint of their misfortune. And I'd submit that perhaps an even greater tragedy than not following Christ at all is the man who believes he is a follower but does not know Christ after all. Would you think about that statement? Perhaps an even greater tragedy than not following Christ at all is the man who believes he is a follower but does not know Christ after all. If you have a copy of God's word, turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna be in verses 21 through 23. Matthew seven, uh, this passage is one of the last pieces of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters five through seven, we see Jesus's longest recorded sermon in scripture. And it doesn't really matter if you've grown up in church your entire life, or if this is the first day that you have ever stepped foot in a church before, because it is very likely that you have heard pieces of this sermon before. If you've ever heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe some of you have ever said or heard the Lord's Prayer, right? Where Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there are pieces to this sermon that are hopeful and exciting. And there are pieces to this sermon that are sobering and enlightening. And where we are going to land today is most certainly of the sobering variety. This would have been the part of Jesus's sermon where you better lean in and listen carefully because you do not want to miss his words here. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, they say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here we have it, right out of the text from Jesus' mouth himself, we see the picture of a counterfeit disciple. Jesus clearly says that there will be some who come to him with the belief that they are his disciple, and yet he will look at them and say, I never knew you, depart from me. In verses 15 through 20, the passage right before ours today, Jesus warns about false prophets and how they will be recognized by their fruits. But in verses 21 through 23, Jesus is talking to a completely different group of people here. J.C. Ryle said this one time, he said, the Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from, now catch this, he turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. This passage is not directed at the agnostic or the atheist. It was not intended for those who have no concept of God at all or for those who have never heard of God before. This passage is for a very specific group of people. John MacArthur explains it another way when he writes, Jesus is speaking specifically to people who are devotedly religious, 
but who are deluded into thinking they are on the road to heaven when they are really on the broad road to hell. So you see what I mean now? This is not a part of the sermon where we want to doze off during it. Those who were listening to Jesus' words at this time uh, would have been leaning in a little bit closer. They would have been listening carefully to every word because of the weight that each word carried. And church, I would submit that today we need to have that same level of attention to Jesus's words. Church, it is my heart and it is my desire that this morning we all collectively become more aware of Jesus's warning to us. It's not my intention to scare any of us, and it's not my intention to confuse anyone in here this morning. I simply pray that I myself and you along with me will become more aware today of where we are in our walk with Christ. And it is my prayer that we would all live lives not as counterfeit disciples, but rather true, authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's take this text, but let's look at it from a different angle. Because if Jesus shows us in this passage what a counterfeit disciple looks like, then let's look at it a different way and see what an authentic disciple looks like. First observation we'll make is that authentic disciples know their God. Authentic disciples know their God. Look back at verse 21 with me. It says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, at first glance, this verse can actually be very confusing. How could someone know who Jesus is and even refer to him as Lord and yet not enter the kingdom of heaven? After all, isn't the entire Christian faith hinged on having faith in Christ and believing who he says that he is. Romans 10, 9, we quote this every time that we baptize someone here at Crosspoint. We say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in light of that, how does that work with what Jesus just said to us here in this passage? Allow me to make a statement and then explain it to you. There is a difference in knowing Jesus is Lord and knowing Jesus as Lord. Make sure you catch the nuance of that. There is a difference, church, in knowing Jesus is Lord and knowing Jesus as Lord. I could say it a different way to help. There's a difference in, in excuse me, intellectually knowing who Jesus is and personally knowing Jesus for yourself. At the beginning of this section, when I said that authentic disciples know their God, this is not an intellectual knowledge. Though that is likely implied, this is a personal knowledge of Jesus as Lord. If you've ever had a conversation with me for more than five minutes, you've probably learned that I'm a very large sports fan. Mike said that as he was standing up here this morning. I love watching sports, I love playing sports, and I love experiencing sporting events. A few weekends ago, I had the opportunity to go to Clemson-Syracuse game. That was back when Clemson was a top five team in the country. We cannot say the same after yesterday anymore. But I remember, and I went to this game, and it was actually really, really fun. Now, I'm by no means a Clemson fan, 
but I'm also not someone who says no to a great game. One of my uh, closest friends worked on Clemson strength and conditioning staff uh, for a few summers and is very well connected with the team still today. And he was able to get our whole friend group tickets on the first and second row, right on the 50 yard line behind the Clemson's bench. It was awesome. It turned out to be an amazing game. It came down to the end. It was a really, really cool experience. So after the game, we ran onto the field and I'm standing next to these giants of college football players that are walking around all over the place. And then we had the opportunity afterwards to tour the football facility. So I saw the weight room, I saw the different practice areas, and I walked in and through the player's lounge. And so during that time, while we're walking around and touring this facility, of course, there's players and there's families and there's recruits and there's coaches walking all over the place. Now, having a good knowledge about college football, I knew the names and the faces of many different people in that building. I knew some of the coaches. I knew some of the players. I had watched plenty of games. I have read all the articles. I've listened to all the podcasts. But here's the thing. Not a single person in that building, outside of my friends, not a single person in that building knew my name. There was not a single coach who at any point called out my name. There wasn't a badge sitting on my hip that scanned me into the building. Nobody knew who I was. But when my friend walks around Clemson, players know his name. Coaches know his name. He knows the nicknames that players have. He knows their different personalities and their different qualities. He can tell you the guys who work hard and the guys who slack off in practice. He can tell you about the culture of the team and what they value and their shared common language. So what's the difference? We're both huge sports fans. We both love college football. We both have a lot of knowledge about the sport and about the players and about the coaches. The difference is the personal investment that he has put into that program. The difference is the time that he has spent with these players. The difference is the relationship. And here's the problem with us in the church today. Many of us have graced the church with our presence. We have sat through the sermons. We've even attended a small group, maybe in a season of life. We've learned all the Bible stories. We grew up going to VBS. We've showed up for every service opportunity that the church has available. We have maybe even faithfully tithed during a season of our life. So by all accounts, we know a lot. But how many of us outside of the walls of this building have any sort of personal relationship with Jesus Christ? How many of us every day spend time studying his word that he's given to us? How many of us spend time in communication with him through prayer and listen for his voice? How many of us have truly made him Lord over our lives and have surrendered everything that we have to his plans? You know, Jesus in John 10 illustrates this relationship with the imagery of a sheep and their shepherd. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The only way that a shepherd or a sheep knows the shepherd's voice is because of the personal relationship that they have. The relationship is not an exchange of information between them. It is a, for the sheep, it is a daily dependence upon their shepherd for all things, in all areas of their life, at all times. And in the same way, Jesus points out that the counterfeit disciple will know that Jesus is Lord, but the authentic disciple is one who knows Jesus as their personal 
Lord. Second observation we'll make is this. Authentic disciples obey their God. They obey their God. Look at verse 21 again with me, but let's look at it in light of the second half of this verse. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. First, let's notice the structure of this verse. Jesus is contrasting two different groups of people. He has a group on one side, the people who say to him, Lord, Lord. And then he has a group on the other side that he calls the ones who does the will of my father. Now with these two different groups, I want you to notice a key word that Jesus uses in the middle of this passage. He uses that word, but. These people will not enter, but these people will. He's juxtaposing these two different groups and he is highlighting their differences. So what's the difference between them? Obviously, the latter group knows Jesus personally. We just talked about that. But they also do the will of the Father. Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the life of an authentic disciple here by highlighting that they do the will of the Father. So the natural question that we need to be asking today is what does it mean to do the will of the Father? How do we even know what God's will is? That's a question that so many people are asking today. What is God's will for my life? Where does he want me to go? What does he want me to do? What is God's will? Well, the Greek phrase that Jesus uses in this passage for the will of the Father is thelema tu patros. And this is nearly the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. The only difference is that Paul's passage says thelema tu theo, which means the will of God. So aside from that change of father to God, which is meaning the same thing, they are the exact same phrase. Some of you are asking right now, why in the world did you just bring that up? I promise you it's not to flex. I didn't know that off the top of my head. I had to research it, okay? So hang with me. I brought that up because of what Paul says in the next verse. This is important because Paul says something in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 that's gonna bring a lot of clarity to this for us. So let's read this verse together. It says, for this is the will of God, your, your sanctification. Paul says that the will of God is my and your sanctification. This word sanctification literally means to be made holy. So as we go throughout scripture and as we study this word, we learn that our sanctification is a process. It's what we know as progressive sanctification. It means that as believers and as followers of Christ, we are progressively becoming more like Jesus every single day. We are being made holy. We're in that process. Now, this word holy literally means to be set apart or other than. The only one who this word actually applies to in scripture is God. The rest of us, those of us who are in Christ and God's spirit dwells within us, we are then working with the spirit of God to become more holy. So this may be a newsflash for anyone in the room that does not already know this, but you are not holy. You are not perfect. I'm not perfect. We are all messed up and we are all broken by this thing that the Bible calls sin. And every good story has a problem that must be solved. If you read any book, any novel, you watch any movie, any TV show, I promise you there is going to be a problem at some point that has to be solved. And this is the big problem that the Bible or the story of the Bible tells us about. We see that God is holy and he is separate 
But we as humans are sinful and we are broken. And because of this, there is a chasm that lays between us that we cannot cross to the other side. And the only way to fix this problem was for Jesus, the son of God, to come and live a perfect life, to die in our place and to pay the payment of death that you and I owed. And as we see in the rest of the story, as the Old Testament sets up and it comes to a culmination in the New Testament, we see that Jesus rose back to life. He defeated death and sin, and he gave us his spirit to dwell inside of those of us who are his disciples. So one of the primary purposes of God's spirit dwelling in us is for our sanctification. It's both a work of grace on God's part and a concerted effort on our part to daily battle our sinful flesh and become more like Christ. That's the will of God for your life. That's the will of God for my life. So let's bring it all the way back to our question at the beginning of this. What does it mean to obey the will of God? We'll put it as simply as I possibly can. It means to look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday. If you want to know, question answered, what is the will of God for your life? It is to look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday. So let's all take a moment real quick and let's ask ourselves that question. Do I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? Do I, Ryan, look more like Jesus than I did a year ago? Do I look more like Jesus than I did five years ago? Because if it's true that the authentic disciples are obedient to God's will, and God's will is our sanctification, then there should be evidence of that growth in our lives, right? Like that only logically makes sense. Does that mean that we're going to be perfect every single day in our process of growing? No. Does that mean that we're never gonna take a few steps back and mess up? No. But when we look at the chart and we look at the graph and we look at the scope of our life, we should see this process of us growing in maturity and see fruit over time. Just one verse before our passage, Jesus says in verse 20 that you will recognize them by their fruit. So let's all take a spiritual exam for just one moment and let's take a look at our lives. Do you see good fruit in your life? Is there evidence that God has been working in you? Because everybody produces fruit, good or bad. The question is what kind, of or what kind of fruit are you producing? Are you able to be more patient with other people? I struggle with that one. Do you have a love for people? Are you able to resist temptation that is in your life? Do you exercise self-control on a daily basis? Do you find joy in Christ? Do you have peace in your life? These are all examples of good fruit. And this is not our end goal. It's not our ultimate aim, but Jesus, as he would say, or excuse me, as um, James would say in his letter, it will be a result of our faith. So where a counterfeit disciple would show no fruit and no growth in their lives, the authentic disciple is one who is actively taking steps to look more like Jesus by remaining obedient to his will. The third and final observation we'll make out of this passage is that authentic disciples trust their God. Authentic disciples trust their God. 
Matthew 7, verse 22, read this with me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? There's a couple issues to work through in this verse. The first one is this, what is this day that Jesus is talking about? This day that Jesus speaks of is likely best understood as the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, this is commonly referred to as the day of the Lord. It's in reference to the day when Jesus will return to judge all people. And when that time comes, Jesus is showing us how many people will be pointing to their good works. And this raises our second issue with this passage. I want you to imagine the insanity of this scene for just a moment. Jesus has come to rule and reign over the world and to make all things new. He is seated mightily and powerfully on his judgment seat. And these people who we now understand as the counterfeit disciples have the audacity to come before him and say what? They didn't say, thank you for saving me. They didn't say that I'm a sinner in need of grace. They didn't say, oh God, there is nothing good in me apart from you. No, they pointed to themselves. They pointed to their good works and what they did for God. They pointed to all the times that they served God by working for him. And sure, they remedy it by saying, well, we did it in your name. But ultimately, on the day of judgment, these people stood before the Lord and they pointed at themselves. But before you and I are quick to judge, many people today live their lives in that very way. They do what they think is right. They avoid doing wrong things. And they are just good people trying to live a good life. And I know people right now in my life that think that that will be enough. And I tremble and I fear for them when this day comes, the day when they are brought face to face with their creator. When the sovereign Lord of the universe evaluates their life and all they have to bring is their good works. You wanna know that the language that the Bible uses for us before we are in Christ. If you go back and read through Ephesians two, you would see in verse one, it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We weren't just dirty and needed to be cleaned up by some good works. We were dead in our sin. Do you wanna know what a dead man can contribute to his own salvation? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's kind of the whole point of the verse. You were dead in your sins. And yet we have the audacity to think that if we just do enough good, then surely that will be enough. Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You see, the truth of the gospel is that we do nothing to earn our salvation. It is a gift that has been given to us. If you skipped a couple verses later in Ephesians 2, you would see that 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Notice the final words of that verse there. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In 1829, a man named George Wilson was arrested for robbery and murder in a U.S. mail heist. He was tried, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. 
Some of his friends intervened on his behalf and were able to obtain a pardon from President Andrew Jackson. But when told of this, Wilson refused it, saying that he wanted to die. Well, as you can imagine, the sheriff had no idea what to do with that. How do you execute a man who has been officially pardoned by the president? An appeal was then made to the president, who was perplexed by the matter, quite frankly, and he threw it over to the Supreme Court. And he said, I don't know, you guys figure this out and deal with it. And Chief Justice John Marshall gave this ruling in 1829. Listen to this. A pardon is a piece of paper the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. Anyone under the sentence of death would hardly be expected to refuse a pardon. But if it is refused, then it is no pardon. So therefore, George Wilson was executed with his signed pardon from the president laying on the sheriff's desk. Jesus has paid the price for our sin and effectively given us the pardon that leads to eternal life. And yet, when we choose to trust in our own good works and our own good deeds, we reject his free gift that he has made available to us and we willingly lead ourselves into our own self-destruction. The counterfeit disciples trust in their works. They trust in their good deeds. They trust in their acts of service and in, in their volunteer hours. But the authentic disciple trusts in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And at the end of the passage, Jesus tells us of his final words to the counterfeit disciple. The disciple who does not actually know Jesus personally, the one who has no participation in the Father's will, the person who trusts in their own works for salvation. To that disciple, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Though their friends may have been fooled, though their families and their spouses may have been fooled, though their church community may have been fooled, though they themselves may have even been self-deceived, King Jesus was not fooled. But to the authentic disciple, the disciple that knows Jesus personally, the one that obeys the will of the Father, the person that trusts not in their own works, but in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus will one day turn to that disciple and he is not going to be saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus will look at them. And church, I hope Jesus will look at you one day when the story of your life is written. And when you have drawn your last breath and you come to meet Jesus face to face, I pray that he will look at you and I pray that he will look at me and say these words, not I never knew you, but rather well done, good and faithful servant. Will you bow your heads? So church, maybe for some of you today, you have looked up and you have realized that you have bought into a counterfeit faith. Maybe you didn't realize it before and you never intended to be here. But as you're sitting here listening to these words this morning, Jesus' warning sounds a lot like you. 
Maybe some of you would say that you have never made a decision to follow Christ in the first place. And I wanna ask you this question, why not start today? What are you waiting for? If, if Jesus's words are real and this is serious, we don't know what time we have left. Do you want to meet Jesus face to face and hear these words, I never knew you, depart from me. Jesus calls all to come to him, including you this morning, no matter where you have been, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you have done. He brings all to himself. So, you know, we don't believe in any magic words here. There's no formula to this process. It is simply recognizing your sin. It's an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and what he did for you. And then it is a choice on your part to make him Lord of your life and to follow him every day. So if that is you, if you would like to make that decision this morning, would you just pray something like this? God, I know that I am a sinner. I am broken and I was separated from you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to buy my pardon. God, I believe that you lived the perfect life, that you died in my place and that you rose again three days later. God, I believe now that I have the opportunity by faith to follow you and become your disciple. Now, if you made a decision to pray that prayer today and you're here in person, would you come talk to us? Come and meet us at our next step, steps table out in the lobby. Have a conversation with somebody so that we can help you as you begin this journey. And for those of you that are online, would you just go to crosspointchurch.com next? Would you follow the prompts on there, fill them out so that we can begin to connect with you and let you become a part of what we are doing here at Crosspoint. And then as we close for the rest of us, Authentic disciples live to look more like Jesus every single day. So I wanna ask you this question, how are you doing that? What are some areas of growth that you know that you need to take in this process of becoming more like Jesus? What are some ways that here at Crosspoint, we can help you begin to take your next step in whatever that looks like? Would you come talk to us so that we can help you on your own personal journey? Because it is our desire that we have a church full of true, authentic disciples that are running together on mission to point people to Jesus and inspire them to live the cross-shaped life so that when it is all said and done and when Jesus returns, that he would look at this church and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have just to study your word. God, it is a gift and it is a treasure to us in this life. Lord, may we treasure it and may we cling on to every word. And God, may you mold every single one of us to begin to look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. God, may you raise up a church here at Cross Point that is full of disciples that are authentic and true and obedient to you. God, may we know you personally and walk with you daily. And God, as a result of that, may we, yes, see our lives changed, but may we see the lives of those around us radically changed for the good news of the gospel. So Father, we thank you and we love you pray that your spirit would go before us today and that we would honor and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.